you know, I can remember my first portfolio was a thing that was color reproductions and I had a, a comb binding on it and it was square and, you know, it was not a black portfolio that you would go buy at Dick Blick or whatever. And then that moved to slides and then 35 millimeter slides were too small. So I did four by fives with a nice black uh, mat around it and shipping all of these things out. At one point, I had five different couriers in five different cities holding on to hard copy portfolios. I had a list of agencies or publishers or magazines that I wanted them to send these things to, and they would just cycle them through. That is the voice of Whitney Sherman. Hi, my name is Whitney Sherman. I'm an illustrator. I run a business called Whitney Sherman Illustration and Peabody Design. I'm also the founding program director of the MFA in Illustration Practice at MICA. I'm the co-director of Dolphin Press and Print, and for 10 years prior had been the undergraduate chair of illustration. I first knew Whitney in that last role. Back when I was an illustration student at MICA, she was department chair and in my final semester, my thesis professor. The extensive resume she just rattled off only scratches the surface of a long and accomplished career, including, notably, illustrating the breast cancer research stamp in 1998. As of 2018, over 1 billion stamps have been sold, raising more than $80 million for research. Over the years, Whitney has witnessed the profession of illustration evolve, reacting to changes in culture and business and technology. It was technology, of course, that rendered those hard copy portfolios obsolete. People wanted to see a website, so now I had all these portfolios that I didn't need anymore because I didn't need a courier to take it around. I would just set up a website, and then I could send out a card and let people know I've got a website. But then websites changed as well, and people started doing blogs, and people started getting into social media, Facebook initially, and and now it's expanded to many other things. And we don't know really what other kind of platform is going to come out and how people will really interact with it. You know, who could have predicted Snapchat as an activity, as a thing that people engage in, and yet this is how people get to know each other. So even the people that five years ago were kind of on top of digital stuff, you know, unless they choose to keep moving forward, they're a little bit in the dust. And you have to do that. You have to keep moving forward with things as they change and kind of understand how can I use this. That idea of worrying about am I going to stay current, it's just you stay current or you don't. You choose between those two things. Change is nature. It's inevitable. The important question, as always, is how do you react to it? Do you resist or adapt? Over the last six episodes, we've explored how design and illustration changed the tech industry. Today, we ask the opposite. How did tech change illustration? And not just the way it's produced and delivered, but also the second and third order effects. After all, technology has altered culture itself. How have these changes affected art education? What are the skills and qualities necessary for a successful career? I'm Mark Grambo, and this is the final episode of How to Draw a Startup, a step-by-step guide to illustration and tech.
Step 7. Stay nimble. Before Whitney Sherman was a MICA professor, she was a MICA student. I have a degree in photography. I had started in undergraduate wanting to do graphic design, but I found myself in an academic environment that wasn't supportive of that. I knew that I wasn't a painter or a sculptor, and at this time, these roles were very clearly defined. I felt like photography really did it for me because it was a practice where you're composing and where you're using light and really strongly compositional pieces. And that's kind of where I come at my illustration from is how the elements interact with each other. But upon graduating in 71, Whitney knew she wouldn't pursue photography professionally. Her education had been centered around fine art photography, creating beautiful prints and selling them to galleries, but that didn't really interest her. Meanwhile, that fine art training had left her without the technical skills she'd need to succeed in commercial fields like fashion and wedding photography. I just started looking for work. (laughs) And that's what drove a lot of my entry into many of these different areas of advertising and publication design, product design, and getting into doing illustration as well. It wasn't something that I even knew that I was going to be doing when I was an undergraduate. Entering the field around the same time as Whitney was Alan Comport, who we met briefly back in Step 5. With Whitney now leading Micah's illustration MFA program, Alan is the chair of Micah's undergraduate illustration department. Alan has decades of experience in the industry, including a number of years as an artist rep at Shannon Associates. And yet, Alan didn't study art or illustration as a young man. So how did he end up in this business? Well, I am delighted to say it's a love story. When I was a teacher um, right out of college, I met and fell in love with a young artist whose name is at that point was Sally Wern and now Sally Wern Comport. And Sally was uh, majoring in illustration at Columbus College of Art and Design. Um, We couldn't wait to get married and did so young. And so I became super interested in communication arts and the visual arts um, just from being married to an art school brat. And also her father owned the biggest ad agency in Canton, Ohio. So I started in the summers and on weekends, see what was going on there. And pretty soon when you're in a family that owns an ad agency, you begin getting sucked in. And I was working in the silkscreen shop back there and I was uh, helping Sally do some concept work on ads she was doing for her father's agency and stuff. And so I kept just developing more and more of an interest Soon, the couple found themselves in Denver, Colorado, Sally at a design firm, and Alan working as a psychotherapist. We both got an itch to do something different, something that we controlled. And so she left her job first, opened up a very small, humble uh, art studio. And uh, it wasn't long thereafter that I left my job and we opened up a small company called Wern Comport Art and Illustration. And the idea was that I was going to be the outside sales guy and get the work and uh, do all the promotion and marketing. And Sally was going to produce the work. This kept her doing what she liked and kept me doing what I liked. And uh, we would see if it worked. It did. Sally's work for local clients caught the eye of the Boston Globe, which led to a weekly piece in the Focus section, which led to the New York Times, which led to the MIT Technology Review, and so on. As their momentum continued to grow, the Comports considered moving to the center of the action. 
in the uh, 70s and certainly in the 60s, the whole industry, especially of illustration, was New York-centric. You know, at the time, the way you did it was you would graduate from art school and move to New York. And if you didn't have the nerve to move to New York, walk the streets of New York with your giant portfolio and bang on doors to show your work, you just weren't going to make it. And you didn't care anyway, because you weren't willing to do what you needed to do. And that was it. I mean, you needed to go and, you know, worship at the altar of the door slamming in your face. It sounds harsh, but if you had the emotional stamina, it was worth it. Take it from Whitney. I was a real firm believer in doing all of that because I knew any time I could sit down with an art director and show them my work, I got a job. And it had to do with that personal connection. There's lots of talent out in the world. Beyond that, art directors are very busy people and they want to be working with people that they know are not going to be a pain in their neck. They're going to deliver good work and they're going to be good people to have their exchanges with. Alan and Sally decided to move east, but New York seemed just a bit too intimidating. Instead, they landed in Tampa, Florida, and grew Sally's illustration practice into a larger business called WC Studio, employing a calligrapher, three photographers, and five illustrators. It wasn't New York, sure, but with enough hustle, there was plenty of work to be found, including the Florida Lottery and the supermarket chain, Publix. What I would do is I would get up every day put the portfolio together, put in any new work I could. And I literally would drive from ad agency to ad agency to design firms to marketing companies. And I would go in and it was almost like something out of the 50s where you'd walk into the office and she'd go, hi, Alan. And I go, hi, Dorothy, how you doing? Is, you know, is Andy in? And she'd go, yeah, just go on back. And I, <laughs> you could just walk back into the art director's office and go, hey, Andy, it's Alan. How you doing today? And, oh, Alan, come in. I really wanted to show you something. I'm glad you caught here. You know, and then you, you would just get work that way. And it it was crazy. And, and so I would go out all day and call on all these clients, almost like doing a route. And I'd come home at night and then Sally and I would have a meeting in the evening usually. And I'd say, okay, I got, you know, from Benito Advertising, I've got this Publix job and we're going to do storyboards for a Publix commercial on their bakery. And here's, you know, it's going to open on this. And I would explain the whole thing to her and then she, okay, I think I have it. And then she could go to work on it. And we would do that for magazine jobs, for advertising jobs, design jobs. But thanks to technology, WC Studios' business wasn't limited to Central Florida. And when I say technology, I'm not talking Photoshop or the World Wide Web. So we were on the cusp of this newer kind of way of doing it, is living where you want and trying to use emerging, and I mean emerging, technology um, such as a forerunner of faxes called quips, where you could actually send work over the telephone and the uh, advent of Federal Express, for example, as a way to move images overnight um, so that you could actually finish something at 6.30 in the evening in your studio in Florida. Uh, I mean, I've actually walked down under the tarmac toward the jet with a piece that was due the next day, and it would get to your client the next morning, and they could call you up on the phone and say, hey, I got it. It looks good. Here we go. Um, how it was done before was you actually had to hand deliver everything, and the cost there, however, was the um, relationship face-to-face -face with art directors. Uh, slowly, the need to have the personal relationship began to become less 
and less and less. And so there was almost like a crisis point in the late 80s where everything was kind of just becoming so impersonal that the need for art itself as an original conceptual thing began to come into question. And that's when things like stock illustration and stock photography really took off because they would say, well, why do I even need to talk to that person? I can go to this book or this website and just buy something off of there and I don't have to hassle with, you know, talking the artist through it or telling the photographer, you know, what I need and I can just find it. I can show it to the client. They could approve it. This is going to be so much easier. Well, what suffered was the conceptual brilliance of what artists, designers, photographers, writers could bring to that particular project. And so there was a swing away from the kind of personal service. And now it's really swung back because we've figured out how to use all of the new media and technology and still not at the sacrifice of good, strong conceptual ideas. I mean, ideas are what drive everything. A a really great idea well done is still the goal. It was the goal of in the 40s and 50s. It's the goal in 2018 as well. It's, it's if you can really communicate something simply, smartly, and concisely, one idea, really well done, you're hitting the nail on the head. So the industry really has had to, over and over in the last 30, 40 years, adjust to emerging technology and decide how we were going to use it and leverage it to do better work. And it took us a while as an industry, and I'm talking about illustration now, to decide that technology wasn't the enemy. It was just another tool for us to do what we did. But at first, it really did feel like the enemy. We're going like, this is going to kill illustration. Illustration's over. That's it. It's done. And uh, it's not. The march of technological progress hasn't just changed illustration. It's reshaped almost every corner of society, and whatever affects culture will inherently affect the arts. As we discussed in the previous episode, the smartphone revolution has resulted in a new generation that's more design literate than any generation prior. The students that are coming in now come to us on National Portfolio Day when they're still in high school with really sophisticated work these ridiculous portfolios with like great photography great design an animation you know a a sound piece costume design a game that they've developed and actually you can play you know and it's because they've had a lot of them, not all, but they, a lot of them have had opportunities to start to specialize much earlier. They've been taking drawing classes outside of high school. They have been taking illustration classes at the local community college. They've been studying with this person. And, and so when you look at a portfolio now of a high school student, you can say, you know, okay, this is looking really awesome. You know, what I'd like to see you do is do more observational drawings of this specific thing and get that into your portfolio. And and so the, the kind of feedback we're giving high school students who are going to apply to MICA is the kind of feedback that when I first started teaching at MICA, you would be giving to seniors. Well, I want to challenge you on that a little bit because MICA and, and private colleges in general are more expensive than ever. And is a rising tide of better access to, you know, the internet, to design software and tools and all this stuff, 
is it so damn pervasive that you're in fact lifting all boats or is this exacerbating an issue of young students of privilege who have the access to this stuff and have access to the outside tutors and the, and the outside classes shoot so far ahead now that you're actually then losing a whole other crop of folks who just can't afford it. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And as an institution, we have prioritized programs of opportunity for underserved communities to engage with MICA earlier. So for example, a student so just let's say from Baltimore that knows they're an artist, they want to be an artist, they're sophomore in high school, and we have outreach programs to try to identify and expose these students to MICA to where they can start taking you know, art classes while they're in high school and they would count for their high school education and it fast tracks them into MICA. And in the meantime, they're getting tuition breaks as they take these classes. You know, the more they take and the more they accomplish, it starts to count against their tuition. And so, you know, we're trying to find opportunities to keep MICA within reach of anybody. Sammy Hoy, the president, is really committed to not leaving people behind because they can't afford a a MICA education. And so he wants to literally transform not just MICA, but Baltimore through MICA. And boy, that's ambitious, but it's also super inspiring. Social media has also changed the dynamic. Today's students are especially savvy. They grew up with it. They're posting their work on Instagram and Twitter, where they're being discovered by art directors. And so they're being contacted. Nobody knows that they're a sophomore in an art school. They just see this person who does this kind of work, and boy, I could use that, and will you do this for me? And so as a result, they're working professionally in their sophomore years. Probably a majority in their junior years have done professional work, and by the time they're seniors, they're getting you know, job offers and big freelance gig offers and putting out work and they have Etsy shops. And and so like this whole professional piece is happening earlier and earlier, which is causing us to redefine professional development as an institution and, and start to offer pieces of it earlier. Most classes at MICA meet once a week and are generally split into two types, studio classes, which are six hours long, and academic, which are under three. When I was at MICA, Alan taught Senior Seminar, an academic class on the business of illustration. He advised us on how to prepare a contract, how to promote our work. It was a great resource, but limited in scope. A short lecture class tacked onto the main event, Senior Thesis. A studio class for working on and critiquing our thesis projects. The time and attention needed to really absorb those business lessons just wasn't there. So now thesis is its own thing and professional development is its own six-hour studio class, which allows me to, when I talk about portfolio development and website development, I just don't say do it and show it to me, done. The students are going to have time within that class to put together a professional package of business cards and letterhead and promotion pieces. And the time is built into the class itself. And and I can be there with them going like that type doesn't work at all or, you know, whatever. And, And the same thing with the website. It's too clunky. It needs to be smoother. Let's think about, you know, Squarespace and how you can use that rather than this. And then the other idea was to open up professional development 
development to juniors so that at the beginning of their junior year, when we start to talk about market-based work, they can take professional development and be thinking about their professional package and what does copyright mean and how to read a contract and how to write a contract and how to negotiate pricing. So we're trying to make it more and more available to them when they're ready and they can jump in. So some students still want to wait till their senior year because they're just not ready to think about pricing and money and contracts. They don't want to think about that. But there's a lot of students that in their junior year were, you know, sending me emails going, I, I was just sent this thing called an NDA. I don't even know what this is. And they want me to sign it. You know, So um, we, we're trying to get it to them earlier. And when they're ready, they can jump in. It's not just the individual departments taking on professional training. I'm Marsha Hammond, and I am the Assistant Director of Career Development at MICA. I work specifically with the design and media-based majors and programs, both at the graduate and undergraduate level. So that spans everything from graphic design, architectural design, product design, to illustration, animation, video, interactive arts, user experience. Like Whitney, Marsha began her MICA career as a student earning a BFA in sculpture and a master's in art education. Shortly after graduating, she joined the Office of Admissions and, over the next decade, worked her way up from counselor to director of admissions. It's an interesting counterpoint to her current role in career development. Philosophically, you know, when I was in admission, I was kind of shepherding everyone to the same point, whereas now I get to shepherd each individual out to their own kind of, you know, really challenge them to go after whatever it is that makes them tick, and I really love that. First and foremost, we're about teaching students how to build a sustainable career. So, you know, we want to teach you how to be effective networkers, how to communicate your value, how to put that into your professional package and go out there and be successful. Really understanding that it's not just about the work that you're creating, but how do you market that work? How do you talk about yourself? What are the soft skills that you need to be able to not just get your foot in the door, but actually get hired and impressed during an interview? You know, when you look at statistically how people get jobs and opportunities, so much of it comes back to whether you want to call it networking or just you know talking to people. And I, I do see with the rise of such you know such a digital culture such a social media culture that the students that i meet with now are actually really sometimes they really struggle with that face to face networking they're just the thought of going out and talking to people like i can't just send this out and click a button and then it's done even writing emails i do a lot of helping students custom craft their correspondence in a way that is both genuine and professional, and, and, but also taking into account what the other person's needs are. And networking is just the start. Marsha's department is about more than helping students land that first job or freelance gig. They're looking at the skills MICA alumni will need to succeed throughout their careers. Our office has been in conversation with our provost about how do we better incorporate entrepreneurial skills into the curriculum from day one, knowing that artists, whatever kind of creative you are, there is usually a place in your life where you're going to have to do something entrepreneurial. The statistics are something like 80, 90% of our alumni have something entrepreneurial that they've done, whether that's selling a painting or, you know, truly being their whole income is freelance. So there's a huge 
push towards that. And it's something that's also been driven by the surveys that we've gotten back from alumni saying, I wish I had learned more about this because I, I need that now. All this said, the ultimate purpose of an art education isn't how to get a job any more than it is how to paint. The college does its best to arm students with technical and business skills, sure. But perhaps the most valuable lesson is how to think, how to approach problems and address them in a visual manner. A graduate could take those skills to a gaming or animation studio, but Alan knows MICA grads can do so much more. Students come into illustration, come into MICA, thinking they know what they want to be and what they want to do. And I want to acknowledge and nurture that idea, but at the same time expose them to a greater breadth of what they could be so that they feel like when they graduate, they have options. You know, I I always tell this story, like students come in and say like, you know, all I want to do is work at a gaming company and I just want to design and draw weapons and I want to do that until I retire. Well, dude, you're not going to do that. (laughs) And so I want to get across to them like what's out there. I think I really feel challenged to make the MICA four-year experience worth the investment in terms of turning out students who have an idea of how they can leverage this visual communication education they got, not just perhaps in just being an illustrator or a designer or even an artist necessarily, but maybe being a great lawyer, a great baker or whatever they, they want to do. I think the education at MICA in terms of visual communication and visual language and visualizing ideas and visualizing information and making that accessible to everyone is applicable beyond just a career in the arts. And so I want them to be able to grasp that and see that. And so the, the options out there become a lot more broad. A great way to prepare for anything is to learn a little bit of everything. It's like language. You can't be fluent in every tongue, but learning basic conversational skills in a bunch of languages will enable you to travel more confidently to new and unexpected places. It'll get you in the door. I'm going to introduce a new term, and I have to credit this to a conversation I had with the chair of graphic design at Micah Brockett Horn. We decided that we were training designistrators The skill sets now are more permeable between animation, graphic design, illustration, even interactive arts and fibers and sound and all of that. And so our students need to learn how to expose themselves to a lot of different things because the difference between emerging when Sally and I did and then emerging when you did, Mark, and then emerging in 2019 is going to be when Sally and I emerged, we really could get 10 editorial jobs a week. You could really sustain yourself with just editorial. Well, that is long, long gone. Now I think that the students graduating really have to be skilled in a bunch of different areas. And what I tell a lot of incoming students when they say, like, I don't know what I want to do. And I say, well, here's a little pattern of how you can think about training. Yeah, you're going to need drawing chops. You need to draw the figure. You need to draw in perspective. Uh, You need to understand color and light. 
so that's all the classic illustration stuff. But that's not enough anymore. You also now, as an illustrator, need to have some design chops. You need to know how to use type. You need to know how to not just compose a picture, but you need to know how to compose a page. And that's still not enough. And now you also need some of this interactive or animation skills. So at the very least, you can animate a GIF and put all these skills together in a package that would allow you to be more nimble entering the marketplace. Of course, this can induce a bit of anxiety. Am I learning the right things? Have I learned so much that I've watered down my core strengths? If you're not careful, it's easy to lose sight of yourself. Most college students are already grappling with finding themselves on a personal, emotional level. That struggle for self-discovery can also manifest as a search for one's personal style. Is my work consistent and distinct? Should it be? Maybe if I have a bunch of different styles, I could be hired for different kinds of work. Or maybe art directors will avoid me because they'll see me as a risk. You never know what you're going to get. If I have one distinct style, maybe art directors who know what they want will flock to me. But what if I pigeonhole myself and nobody wants what I'm selling? You can spin around and around that core fear of, am I good enough? Does anybody love me? One of the things you know that I talk to students a lot, especially seniors, as they're preparing to go into the workplace, and they're freaked out because they haven't perfected their style. You know, style... In a way, people make too much of it because your style is, is so nuanced. It's so embedded in the way you draw and the quality of line and the kind of tones that you use. It's just there. And people say, I don't have a style. And then they show me their work and I go like, of course you have a style. It's so apparent. There's a thread through this body of work that only you could have done. You have a style. Stop it. But at the same point, there was a point when Sally became known for a specific style of these businessmen with big wide shoulders and stove leg pants that were climbing ladders and balancing on tight ropes and, and all this stuff. And honestly, we could have rode that poor horse until it absolutely collapsed. But there was a point when she just said, I'm done. I'm not doing that anymore. Call them back and say, Sally's not doing that guy anymore. She's doing a new guy or a new woman. And people like didn't hire us because they wanted that guy. And that's fine. You just find new work and you move on. You need to be willing to try new things. I, I rep an artist once uh, when I was at Shannon, and he wanted to do just what I'm talking about because he was tired of his gorgeous, beautiful paintings that he was making, but he wanted to do something really loose and free and almost cartoonish and stuff. And so he decided to create an entirely new persona. And he worked under a pseudonym. And in our advertising, there was the page with like his work on it. And then there was this page with this other guy's work on it who had a new name and a new style and everything. And he actually put two lines in, in his studio. And he used two different voices. And when he would call the one, he'd go, hi, this is Mike. How are you? Yeah, I can do that. And then when they'd call the other one, he'd go, good day. This is Glenn. How can I help you? <laughs> So that's a fight we all still fight with. But I think to try new things and to push the boundaries of what you do and how you do it and to really let go of this style thing um, and just trust that it's there and it's working for you, I think that's really one of the keys for longevity. Speaking of long and fruitful careers, 
The day before Alan and I spoke in the summer of 2018, the world lost a remarkable artist. Aretha Franklin died yesterday, and you think of her career, and you see her singing gospel music and then soul music, and then later in her career, you, she actually like sang Nessim Dorma because Luciano Pavarotti couldn't make this one gig, and she literally stepped in and sang opera on like an hour's notice, and it was exquisite. It's still Aretha Franklin, you know what I mean? But it's all these different genres within music. It's still music, and uh, you know, that's courage, and that's like being a real artist. Ready or not, that long career has to start somewhere. Before you know it, you've graduated, and you're trying to find your place in the professional world. Probably the hardest time for our alumni is the first year out because they're trying to establish themselves. They're trying to not look like they're students, even though they just were getting that first real job. You need to begin to identify, do you need a job or can you freelance? The way I like to put it to students is... You have to kind of have a meeting with yourself and take this like personal inventory and and say like, who am I as an artist? What are my skills? Um, what are my possibilities? And, and truly, how do I work and how does that fit into the big whole scene? The question of can I freelance could also be phrased as can I run a business? Here's Whitney Sherman. Well, a freelance was a mercenary, somebody that would go and fight for anybody, anywhere. And even that has uh, some negative connotations that I think are bad, because that basically says, I don't care who I work for, I will do it. When people decide that they're going to be what has always been called freelance, they're actually setting up a business, and they're having to do all of the parts that any small business person would have to do. They have to be aware of things like, how's my health insurance going to work? And who's going to do my taxes? And should I learn how to do them before I hire an accountant? And are these all the markets that I want to be in? Um, so it's, I think it's really important that we as illustrators think of ourselves as independent creative business people rather than freelancers, because that that takes a little of the substance out of what we actually do. When we think of ourselves as somebody that's just like, got a coat, got a sword, I'll be there. (laughs) There's no right or wrong answer to the question of in-house versus independent. It's a personal choice, and one that will likely change over time. You don't need to stay on one track forever. Take it from Meg Robichaud, illustration lead at Lyft, who, prior to her first in-house job in tech, spent seven years as an independent illustrator and designer. They've all been very different and the exact right thing for me at the time. Freelance, I love the idea of just, I wake up every day and I get to draw a new thing. And the fast pace of it and setting the fast pace of it, but feeling really accomplished. Like I find if you have a fast pace when you're in-house, it's really draining because you are here for the long haul. It makes you nervous. Like you know that you can't do this for a long time. But when you have the fast-paced freelancing, like you know that you're in control, that might be my favorite part of it because I love working until like four in the morning sometimes because I'm in control of that. I miss that sometimes about uh, working in-house because it's just I work with people and it's not realistic. If I work until four, I'm still going to feel guilty about not coming in the next day. So like you are still confined to the timelines of nine to five, even though everyone says that you're not. The social part of it is interesting, too, to compare freelancing and in-house. 
I found when I was freelancing, I was really craving like being in an office and, and being around people every day. But now that I'm here, I mean, I, I do really enjoy being around people all day, but I go home and I'm exhausted. And like when I was freelancing, all of my not work time, I was like full energy because I had not talked to anyone all day. And, and actually having that energy to go for an actual really big hike or like do something real at the end of the day instead of like going home and, and you're kind of tired, like maybe you can grab dinner one night a week or something. The energy levels, I think, and where you put them are something I didn't really expect to be a big difference between the two. Once you have been doing something for a long time, it's dangerously easy to mush together how you work with who you are. I was like embarrassed almost when I finally decided to join Shopify just because I had this identity wrapped up in being a freelancer and I had talked about being a freelancer for so long and it was like I was giving in or something. I didn't want to tell the like 20 people who talked to me on the internet and I did it and everyone was only happy for me. Like this thing that was a huge piece of my identity, it turns out was not and it was totally fine and now I was an in-house person and I find that is a lesson I learn over and over. I think even when I was ready to move on from Shopify, it was a very similar feeling of like, oh no, this is my identity. Like I've built this new thing on Shopify and I'm proud of this work. And like now it's like I just gave up on them and people are going to be mad at me again. And obviously not. Everybody is just really happy for me. And it turns out these identities I have wrapped around myself are foolish. There's another common identity trap creatives find themselves falling into. In such a cross-disciplinary world, what do you call yourself? How do you want to be perceived by potential clients or employers? Some folks are comfortable living in the world of hyphens and slashes. Ben O'Brien, on the other hand, chose the opposite approach. Hi, uh, my name is Ben the Illustrator. I was work in illustration, been doing so for almost 20 years now. That's right, Ben the Illustrator. That's the name he's gone by professionally for over a decade. Forget hyphens, forget running around in circles asking, am I a designer or an illustrator or a graphic artist or a this or a that? When you hire Ben the Illustrator, you know exactly what you're getting. Despite that title, Ben actually began his career as an animator. He went independent straight out of school. The animation sort of industry in London is studio-based and, and everyone else was looking to which studio they wanted to go to. But I think I always wanted to do something independent both my parents were, were self-employed their entire working lives. It was very inspiring and it sort of, it showed me what can be done with your own sort of um, gut and determination, I think. He and a few friends soon formed a small independent studio. And as the business grew, so did the variety of work that they were taking on. Ben started doing bits of illustration here and there, learning the ropes as he went, and ended up developing a real passion for it. Within a few years, the studio had run its course and disbanded. And Ben decided to go all in on illustration. Within a studio, I had a lot of different jobs and I'd have to deal with a lot of different things. And that takes up a lot of time that often takes you away from the creative work. I only really wanted to be doing creative work. So instead of having all these other management roles, I just wanted to be an illustrator. And that's kind of where that name came from. It was kind of branding myself to say, look, this is it. I'm not a project manager. I'm not an animation producer. I'm not kind of managing freelancers or anything. I just want to be doing the creative work and I just want to be an illustrator. Of course, working independently can leave one feeling disconnected. A couple of years ago, Ben realized he was in a bit of a bubble. He wondered what life was like for illustrators in other geographies and industries. 
I sort of realised that as much as I feel kind of part of an industry or part of a community, I only really know the people that are in my little bubble sort of thing, the people I've met over the years. And of course, there's, you know, thousands of illustration communities, if you like, because there's pockets within cities, there's pockets working in certain industries, or there's pockets working in certain styles. He put together a survey and sent it out at the end of 2017. I was kind of interested as to where we were as an industry, how everyone was kind of getting along. And so I thought it would be a chance to bring together communities. The children's book publishing communities could be brought together with the hard news editorial communities and the fashion communities, maybe. He asked illustrators to reflect upon their year and share how things were going. Had their workload increased, decreased, or stayed the same year over year? He asked about their clients, if they worked at home, how they self-promote, if they worked with an agent, and much, much more. Ben acknowledges that he's not a professional researcher or statistician. The survey isn't exactly scientific. Its results were limited by language, timing, and the reach of Ben's social network. Still, with 1,261 respondents, it offers far broader insight than a few scattered anecdotes. It's a pulse check for the industry. For example, that first question, how's business? About 25% said their business was down, another 25% said it was about the same, and the remaining half said that things had improved. I had a fairly quiet year last year compared to the couple of years before it. So I think the thing from that is to know, even if you're not you know, having a great year, other people are, so there is work out there, and it's good to know that kind of thing. Ben was surprised to see that, despite a perceived increase in illustration's prominence in tech, gaming, advertising, the majority of respondents still work independently, with only 8% in an in-house role. Most of the people I know are freelance and they're working from home or they share a studio, but I never thought it was going to be quite that many that aren't working in-house sort of thing. I think that's going to go up because I've seen a lot of people, a lot of illustrators over the past 10 years or so, have become studios. They've started on their own make their name, and then they might have occasionally used a freelancer themselves to help them out. And then they basically built into studios. And in the same way, graphic design studios are, you know, perfectly commonplace. And there's some in every town in the, in the world, it seems like. I think illustration studios might start to grow to that point as well. The survey also reflected what Alan and Whitney said about the power of social media. 21% of respondents identified social media as their number one source of work. When we were sending out postcards, you know, I've done all that myself. There's a barrier between you and them. You don't know if they get it. You know, there's not always a two-way communication. But on social media, you know, if you follow an art director and they follow you back, then you're instantly having a conversation. You're showing an interest in them. They're showing an interest in you. And there's far more conversations can come out of that. But the survey wasn't all sunshine. Nearly 70% said they don't earn enough from illustration to live sustainably. About half of respondents work another full-time job, with illustration as a side gig. It's disheartening, if not entirely surprising, given the potentially feast-and-famine nature of a freelance business. But the truth of the matter is a bit more subtle. A number of respondents were students, or just getting started in their careers. In addition, the mostly multiple-choice survey ended with room for comments, and when Ben reviewed these responses... He found echoes of what Meg Robichaud said about the nature of independent work. I think there's a bit of a stigma that you're not a proper illustrator if you're not full-time. But at the same time, illustrators are quite often, you're working from home, perhaps alone if you haven't got a partner or anyone else also working from home. And so for a lot of people, the part-time job is actually beneficial because they know that maybe two, three days a week, 
they're out of the house, uh, they're meeting people, they're interacting, you know, you're kind of doing what humans are supposed to be doing. And then, you know, they're excited about the two days a week that they get to do their illustration work. I know there's some people who might not trade that part-time job because it adds a lot to their life as a whole. I mean, it's a shame for anyone who is struggling and needs that other job when they don't want it, if they want to be a full-time illustrator. And I can only hope that those people are kind of finding a way to balance it or move ahead in a way that they will become a full-time illustrator. I was also alarmed by Ben's finding that nearly four out of five illustrators feel that self-confidence issues have adversely affected their careers. My mind is drawn to the pervasive cultural narrative of the starving artist. On a personal, emotional level, it can be hard to overcome that boogeyman. Jennifer Hom, illustration lead at Airbnb and former Google Doodler, grappled with it too, even with plenty of role models in her own family. I come from a family of some artists, some were amateur and some were professional. My father, he was a commercial artist doing storyboards in New York City. And he actually had me as free child labor. I used to color some of his storyboards for him, unbeknownst (laughs) to me, I was not paid and I should have been paid. But yeah, so I just drew a lot when I was a child and I kind of saw it as the only skill that I had that was monetizable. Everything else that I did was just like not going to be a viable career path. Um, So I just kept going with it. You saw your ability to draw, as you said, as your like one marketable professional skill. So often culturally, a lot of us have to get over the term starving artist and this notion of like, (laughs) sure, I can draw, but, you know, people can be on Broadway too, but they're going to wait tables and maybe get their part 20 years in. Like we have this cultural internalized notion that it's a neat skill, but you're never going to make a living, right? Go be an Mm -hmm. engineer, be a doctor, what have you. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about how, as you mentioned, you have artists in your family. Your father was a professional commercial artist. How much seeing that professional example helped color your understanding that these skills that you had actually could be something. So my my relationship with the idea of becoming an artist was actually, I went through that arc of thinking that I was going to be a starving artist when I was 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was 10, I don't know what happened to me, but I was like, I can't make any money doing this. I'm going to stop drawing. So I literally stopped drawing for three years. Oh, God. And it was, <laughs> it was... It was literally fan art that got me to start drawing again when I was 13. But ironically, so I'm from um, a Chinese-American family. My mother, who should have been the one to say that you should go into the sciences, you should be an engineer, you should be a doctor, whatever. She is the one who encouraged me like unwaveringly to pursue the arts, even through my 10-year-old career crisis moment. She's the one who said, keep going. Because for better or for worse, she was the one who was witnessing my father's success. And he was he was very successful as an artist during what's considered like the second golden age of illustration, which was in the 80s. Um, so she had this like very skewed, <laughs> very optimistic slice of understanding about the art world and its commercial viability. Um, she had no idea that when I was going to school, art was not doing that well as a career. She was just stuck in the 80s. And I'm like, thank God you were, because like if you had a, like the real pulse in your purview, then like you wouldn't have let me do this. But she was eternally optimistic and she's the one who encouraged me to go to art school. Um, and I just happened by luck to hit like the next wave of illustration, golden age, which is for tech. Alan Comport recalls how his family perceived the career he and Sally had chosen. We had been working in Tampa and finally had billed over $100,000 for the year. And we were so excited. And I, 
at the end of the year, it was December, it was Christmas time, we were over, and my mom's the typical Italian little old lady, and I said, Mama, Mama, I got great news for you. We did all of our um, accounting for the year, and look how much money we made, Mom. And I showed her the, the bottom line, what, I forget what it was, and she looked at me, she goes, oh, honey, that's so great. Now you can get a real job. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, Mom. No, this is the real job. This, this is, is me proving that this is the real job. <laughs> exactly. So there's just, there's the self-perception, and there's the, the perception of the world that, because you've chosen to be an artist, what you're trying to do is you're trying to make a living off your hobby. And that isn't the case. And that's, I think, an uphill swim for anyone, um, whether you're a photographer, graphic designer, illustrator, painter, you know, fibers person, whatever you do in the arts, everyone thinks that on some level, they're an artist, that they could do that, they just choose not to, and, and that you do it for fun. Milton Glaser, who's my hero, put out a book not long ago, and the title of the book is Art is Work. And never so true was a statement made. <laughs> While we're on the topic of self-confidence, identity, and professional viability, I want to address two more major factors. First, I'm a firm believer that you need to be your own strongest critic. Objective self-critique is a powerful motivator to improve your craft, a valuable weapon against complacency. But far too often, that spirit manifests as imposter syndrome, the insidious notion that everyone else is a pro who totally knows what they're doing, and you're just faking it, a fraud. Second, a lot of respondents to Ben's survey indicated that they're not confident pricing their work. Money is so often a taboo subject, and that leaves illustrators in the dark. And when lack of financial transparency meets nagging self-doubt, you can start to devalue yourself and your work. Illustrator and designer Hannah Swan knows this struggle all too well. I have undercharged for my work so many times over the years, and it's been really hard. It's actually like a very emotional process. And I think something that's been really helpful to me is talking to people who I know are like billing a lot more than me and finding those people who are kind enough to like just be straightforward and like have an open discussion about rates. And pretty much every single time I've talked to those people, they're like, charge more, charge more. And I'm like, I have less experience. And they're like, yeah, don't charge my rate, but charge, <laughs> charge more than you're charging now. Like, it's just like not enough. And it's been really hard. And every time I pitched a higher rate, like it just like my stomach turned. But ultimately, like it's been really, really important. If I could go back and tell myself something, having this mindset, like, earlier on would have really helped me just to like build in all of those costs that you absolutely have, you know, like all of your software and like all of your student loan debt, everything that you're paying for, like all of that has to go into your rate. And it's like a young freelancer. I think people are just like, well, what can I get like ramen on this week? It's like the horrible mindset. I think there's so many different facets, like looking at the cost of your life, as well as just like understanding that your time is genuinely valuable. I mean, it's certainly hard for me to realize that. I mean, I guess that's just like really um, imposter syndrome. Something that's been so cool about like the time that I came into tech is coming in at the time where people are really starting to value illustration. So I don't have to do as much of that from the ground justification. I think it's been like a big load off my back. And I wonder like if I had come in at a different time, I think my career trajectory would be pretty different. 
The tech industry's embrace of illustration and design is what this series is all about. But that's not to say it's a land of milk and honey, a cure for all illustrative ills. For one thing, some have raised a skeptical eyebrow at the industry's approach to a pillar of traditional illustration. Credit. In Step 5, Koi Vin praised Apple for its use of editorial illustration in the App Store. But he also noted that there are no signatures to be seen, no bylines for illustrators. My one criticism is that I wish the illustrators got credit. And I actually didn't mention that in the article, and several people pointed it out to me. And I think that's maybe the most glaring oversight of the App Store is that the, the illustration is it's important to the overall experience. And I feel like these illustrators should be recognized. Actually, I mean, there's some argument as to why the illustrator shouldn't be credited because the writing is not credited. And Apple is really trying to focus people on the apps themselves. Um, and they're probably not interested in creating a star stable, so to speak, of, of writers and illustrators. I think that would be a distraction for them. But I would also say, like, I would imagine that the writers are on staff. I don't know that for sure, but that would be my guess. Whereas the illustrators are freelancers and the illustration industry as a whole sort of relies on the credits, the, the recognition of their work because they need to build momentum. Um, it's so hard to make a career as an illustrator to begin with, and this would be such a big boost for the industry. Ryan Putnam has a different perspective. As we learned in step one, Ryan's work at Dropbox helped establish illustration's place in tech. He sees the industry as a massive opportunity for illustrators, even though it comes with a different set of rules, risks, and rewards than traditional sectors like publishing and editorial. There's so many amazing, amazing illustrators that work in editorial or some of these other industries where they're making just like nothing. (laughs) And and I want to be like, hey, come over here, try, you know, like, there's a lot to be had here. I think there's trepidation in this tech industry itself because Uh, The same kind of structures aren't the same. Like, you know, an illustrator agent might come here and be like, okay, well, how much royalty do I get from this? Or, you know, like all these things that like just kind of don't apply to our industry. They're still thinking of it as like text taking advantage of illustrators because they're not putting their name on a header image. And there just needs to be a broader conversation of like, what type of compensation we expect as illustrators from these companies. You know, I've gotten very well compensated for equity within these companies. Like, I don't have royalties to this image, but the equity I have in this company is worth way more than any of the royalties that I would have gotten from these companies. There's a lot of opportunity in tech illustration, and like, there's a lot of awesome illustrators that should be getting paid a whole lot more, and they should, come, <laughs> they should come work for some of these companies, I think. Bringing illustrators to the tech industry is about more than individual economic gain. An influx of illustrators with diverse personal backgrounds, professional experiences, and creative approaches could help combat the industry's visual monoculture and lead to more illustrators in positions of leadership. Whitney Sherman has seen this dynamic play out before. The kind of work that's considered acceptable, that's published and celebrated, is a reflection of the culture and the people involved, the creative talent, and the people buying and hiring. When I entered the world of being an independent creative person, print was king, realism was paramount. People who were illustrators who were seen as the top dogs were painters, 
those people were older than me and really hearkened back. They looked back, they revered uh, the golden age. There were very few people that were renegades that were really doing anything outside of that. If they were, it was playful and a bit cartoony, uh, which worked well with advertising and whatnot. You know, and it was predominantly a male field. There were very few females that were at least on the tip of anybody's tongue. It was highly a boys' club. It took a little bit until things started coming out of California that were considered ugly. These things were really coming out of that uh, moment when the group of artists in Northern California called Beautiful Losers were working. And even though they weren't working as illustrators, that work, which referenced street art and graffiti, really had a strong influence on illustrators, people that were feeling like they weren't really fitting into this beautiful oil painting golden age kind of thing. It created this possibility for people to say, you know what, I like that. <laughs> I'm going to go that way. All you need in that instance is a handful of art directors that are looking at that going, yeah, and a handful of illustrators that want to do that too, to really bring that to the forefront. Because there's nothing like that validation that that's okay by seeing something published. Over time, just the way that things have looked and the way that people interpret subject matter has broadened, which is great. This is the equivalent of like anything goes with fashion instead of everybody's dressing exactly the same way. Illustrators already working in tech are key to making this happen. For those of us who scaled the wall and made it in, it's our job to break down the wall, to advocate for illustration and illustrators, to create more professional opportunities. Take it from Jennifer Hom, who has spent the last few years as an illustration manager. I've only been able to shepherd illustrators into full-time jobs over the last two years. And it has been an experience that I never would have anticipated. Because in art school, it's easy to become very absorbed in your own growth, your own abilities. I know that my classmates and I were all very competitive with each other because it's kind of like a lone wolf industry by nature. And I, I didn't really know what it was going to be like to manage illustrators, but I wanted to give it a shot because I saw it as a path for career growth in general. And I found that being able to hire people and bring them into stable full-time careers and guide them along the way of how to conduct themselves in a corporate environment has been so much more fulfilling than I would have expected. It's way more fulfilling than me just like drawing a cool whale, like whatever. Um, that doesn't really mean anything to me anymore. It's more about enabling other people to grow and enabling other people to live creatively fulfilling and financially stable lives that they can be proud of and have a seat at the table where they deserve to be because honestly, like illustrators, I'd like to think are pretty sensitive. Um, they're pretty aware of other people's feelings. And tech is very heavy on the technical side for lack of better phrasing. Um, but it's not very well equipped for connecting with users. And it's important that people that are more creative and more empathetic and more understanding of how human beings think to come into these companies to both reassure our users that 
we're looking out for them and to also kind of steer the conversation internally. And it's been great to give opportunities to people who think about other people. Yeah, I've, I've loved it. The industry needs more illustrators, even if not every company knows it yet. Meg Robichaux argues that it's still early days, which means opportunities may be hiding in plain sight. Like I showed up and I just made up my job. And I think a lot of the illustrators who are in-house right now, that's how we all got here. We just kind of said it was a thing now. But I don't think that window has closed yet. I think if someone said, I'm a content strategist who writes and illustrates, like you just invented a job that we all need. And you just find the space that you fit into. You can be a researcher who also illustrates or whatever it is that is most interesting to you. That's going to be the thing that you're the best at because you're more interested than anyone else. To find your way in, you need to keep your eyes and mind open. You can't always know which opportunity will lead to success or happiness. When I was interviewing on Doodles, I didn't know what I was getting into. I'll be honest. I had no idea what I was doing. I just knew that I wanted to be able to feed myself and I didn't want my mother to worry. RISD has this thing every year called Portfolio Review Day, where a bunch of companies just come to the school and they look at portfolios so that students can get critique from people who are professional art directors, illustrators, designers. So I was a senior and Google happened to have showed up at this review day. And at the time, I didn't know no one around me knew that Google Doodles was a full-time job. We just saw it as something that happened once in a while on the homepage. So I signed up to talk to them because I was just curious. I was like, what are you guys doing here? Brown University is up the hill. You might be at the wrong school. Right. And right. yeah, and I was like, they have engineers or something up there, I think. And they're like, <laughs> oh, no, no, no. We're actually recruiting for the Doodle team. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, like, I don't know what that portfolio is supposed to look like, but here's my gaming concept art portfolio. The Doodle team was impressed by Jennifer and one of her classmates. Once the review day was over, the students gathered in a classroom to discuss their experiences. The one other person that Doodles is interested in said, oh yeah, Doodles was interested in me, but I don't think I want to draw a logo for the rest of my life. And I sat there and I thought to myself, I'm not above that. (laughs) I just kept going with it. Um, And I had no idea what I was getting into. And I'm like, I felt a little bit of shame because I knew that that wasn't deterring me. And even though someone else thought it was beneath them, it wasn't beneath me. So So what does that say about me? Yeah, what does that say about my taste? <laughs> um, but it led me here. And, and I'm, I'm fine. Like, I'm happy with what I do. I find what I do satisfying. So the lesson that I took away from my experience was don't close any doors without knowing what you're closing your door on. It's reminiscent of yes and, that core principle of improv comedy. The yes means you accept what you're given by your comedic partner, or in this case, the professional world. You don't prejudge the idea. You don't shut it down. The and in yes and means you add something of your own. You contribute back, which continues and builds the creative energy. I began this podcast series with an anecdote of 21-year-old me trying to figure out how to turn my illustration degree into a job. Despite plenty of messaging to the contrary from Whitney, Alan, and all my extraordinary teachers at MICA, I had internalized a pretty narrow and distorted definition of what it meant to be a, quote, real illustrator. Real illustrators were freelancers. They worked in editorial or comics or children's books. 
But I had had that conversation with myself that Alan recommended and knew that I needed a full-time job. Maybe I could find work in gaming or animation, but I didn't want to learn 3D modeling. Unlike Jennifer, I shut down entire paths before I even took a step. Instead, I mostly put aside illustration and focused on design and technology, secondary skills that I figured were the clearest path to a steady job. I landed a gig designing and coding marketing emails. I contracted at a children's media company, designing interfaces for online games. That led to a UX UI firm, which led to a healthcare startup, which led to a crypto finance startup, where I am today. Along the way, I'd find ways to use my illustrative skills, but it often felt like a party trick. Surprise, I can draw! For years, I didn't feel confident in my professional identity. Was I Mark the Illustrator? Mark the Designer? It felt like it had been ages since my illustration education, and while most of my work was design, serious imposter syndrome kept me from feeling like a capital D designer. When Whitney and I spoke, we spent the first few minutes catching up. I told her about my career, and nervously admitted to my old professor that sense of conflict and unease I had grappled with along the way. Yeah, I think there's a mistake that people make sometimes in thinking that these different parts or these different pathways are a kind of a crazy quilt or a mishmash, as you were calling it. That's really illustrating how well you are being flexible in determining where you want to be in a, in a creative life. There are a lot of parts to that. One of the benefits of there not being a lot of jobs out there, nine to five jobs for illustrators is that they do have to put these things together. If they're on top of this, they're able to respond uh, relatively quickly to changes. And we know that the economy has a great effect on art in general, you know, whether it's uh, taking art classes out of grade schools or high schools because the budget isn't there or whether it's cutting back on the number of illustrations that might be in a magazine or on a cover. Those kinds of things are really inherent in the life of an artist. And being able to have that flexibility, that ability to uh, move yourself from one place to another is a benefit. It's really an asset to be able to do that. So rather than thinking about it, and I have to say, I, I myself thought about it that way when I first started, that I'm doing a little bit of this, I'm doing a little bit of that, and someday I'm going to be that professional illustrator. I was the professional illustrator. I was responding to the way the world was, the way the economy was, the way business was, and what it was offering out for me to be able to engage in. And so if you've got a, a one track in your mind, you're not going to go there. If you're open to ideas, you're going to be responsive and you're going to be able to engage. A career is a marathon. It's not a hundred yard dash. It's a marathon. And the arc of a successful career is full of change. It's full of challenge. And whether or not you feel like you have the gift or whether or not you feel like you've learned the skills doesn't matter. What matters is your commitment to that gift or those skills. The people who make a career are those whose commitment runs to the very depth of their soul. And you just have to get up every day and work. And you just have to keep working and be enthusiastic 
and be a pleasure to work with. Respect the deadline. Uh, respect your craft. Respect your client. And so that's really what it takes. It's some personality stuff that goes along with the gift or the skills that you've learned. And um, you have to put those things all together. And you have to be committed to be the last man or woman standing. I mean, you just say, like, this is who I am. I'm an illustrator. I'm an artist. I'm a designer. And I'm not going to give up on this. A few years ago, I finally internalized the lessons Whitney and Alan had taught me years earlier. I let go of that myopic definition and finally embraced my own creative identity. I am an illustrator and a designer. I can be a technologist and a storyteller. Illustration isn't about freelance or in-house. It transcends medium and industry and subject matter. Yeah, I think an illustrator is just a way of being. I think people that identify that way as illustrators know that. They know that they're illustrators. <laughs> and there's an identity there uh, that I think these days a lot of people don't see it as defining just one kind of thing. It defines a way of thinking and a way of seeing the design of the world, how the world is made, and how we talk about the world. You know, we're illuminators, we're storytellers, we want to engage with the public, we want to have a dialogue. There are a lot of ways to express yourself. There are a lot of ways to maintain your personal integrity as an artist and fit into the business world and make a living at it. And we do hope that by exposing people to these possibilities and giving them the confidence to enter those areas, that they're going to be entering places that perhaps an illustrator hasn't been before. And perhaps they are then creating a new frontier for our practice. In a sense, today's tech industry is one of those new frontiers. For generations, technology made its mark on illustration. And for the last several years, we've been returning the favor. We demonstrated that illustration can forge an emotional connection with users. By establishing processes and standards, we delivered brand systems that have lasted and adapted. We made technology products and brands more inclusive and representative. We broadened the industry's palette with editorial techniques and approaches. We infused illustration into everyday technology and communication and helped create a more design-literate world. And time and time again, we changed. We adapted, finding new ways to engage and express. And with countless opportunities yet to be found, we're just getting started. That's how you draw a startup. How to Draw a Startup is written, produced, edited, and scored by me, Mark Rambo. You can find the show in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And while you're there, please leave a rating or a review. The show is also on Twitter and Instagram at Draw a Startup. For episode transcripts and guest profiles, go to howtodrawastartup.show. Neither my guests nor I speak on behalf of our respective employers. As always, I've got a couple links for you to check out. First, Ben the Illustrator's survey is now an annual event. The results of his 2018 edition came out while I was working on this episode. Check it out at bentheillustrator.com slash illustrators hyphen survey. Also, when Marsha Hammond isn't teaching college students how to become entrepreneurs, she's being one herself. 
Back in 2014, at just 38 years old, she was diagnosed with stage 2 breast cancer. Faced with a terrifying and uncertain road ahead, she was determined to focus not on fear, but on hope. She designed and printed decals for her chemo-infusion IV bags, covering the scary clinical caution labels with beautiful apothecary-inspired designs, with words like miracles and vitality. Today, Marsha's in remission, thankfully. And with her company, Mind the Current, she's dedicated to transforming the cancer experience for others. Those homemade stickers became Dreamotherapy IV decals, her flagship product. To learn more, go to dreamo.com. That's D-H-R-E-M-O.com. Of course, a portion of all profits goes to cancer research and support organizations. All right, as this is my last episode of the show, it's time for a whole lot of thank yous. First, there'd be no show without my 16 extraordinary guests. Alan Comport, Angela Guzman, Marsha Hammond, Jennifer Hom, Gideon Mayhew, Guillermo Mont, Ben the Illustrator O'Brien, Ryan Putnam, Meg Robichaux, Stuart Scott Curran, Whitney Sherman, Kristen Spillman, Hannah Swan, Quentin Vijou, Koi Vin, and Kevin Walker. Thank you all for generously sharing your time, your experience, your insight, your humor. It was a unique honor to speak with each and every one of you and to weave your stories together. I'd also like to thank you, the listeners, especially those of you who reached out, asked questions, made suggestions, and shared the podcast with your friends and colleagues. I'm so glad the show resonated. Lastly, if it wasn't abundantly clear, this whole podcast is a personal project and has been a pretty massive undertaking. It's been nearly a year of nights and weekends spent interviewing, writing, recording, and editing. This would have been entirely impossible without the patience, love, and encouragement of my wife, Melissa Chow. Thank you, dear, from the bottom of my heart. All right, podcast over. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you around. Bye.